Hello, and welcome to Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely deep literary merit, with your classy and sophisticated hosts, Alexandra Rowland, Freya Mask, and Jennifer Mace. On today's episode, we're discussing Shades of Milk and Honey by Mary Robinette Cowell, the 2015 film Cinderella, and the graphic novel The Prince and the Dressmaker by Jen Wang. Hello and welcome to episode 47, Clothes Maketh Man. I'm Alex and I'm the Fellowship's Elvin Cloaks. I'm Freya and I'm Dorothy's Ruby Slippers. I'm Macy and for the purpose of this episode, I am Rincewind's Wizard Hat. We are three redheaded fantasy authors. And today we're talking about clothing, but not just clothing. We're also talking about etiquette and social signaling and I guess probably something about uh, self-expression and presentation, a lot of really fun stuff, fiber arts. I'm super excited for this episode. <laughs> There's going to be so much fiber arts in this episode, everyone. Hold on yes. to your wizard hats. You both are now dismissed from the podcast. I will talk for the next hour. Thank you for joining us. <laughs> this yeah, is all... Fair. Me and Freya are going to go have some tea. I'll just sit here and be like, once I did some research on wool for a novel. That's it. <laughs> and that's why I introduced you two, in fact. That's true. that's true. You were like, you're writing a novel about wool. Here's someone who's actually handled the stuff <laughs> and chases sheep around the Irish countryside oh, for fun. Anyway, continuing. We, but before we get into all of that, fellow serpents, what have we been reading lately? Well, I actually read a book that's very relevant to the topic at hand, which Ooh. is Maya Rodal's A Duchess by Design. This is a historical romance novel set in the Gilded Age in New York, and the heroine is a dressmaker who, over the course of the novel, ends up trying to patiently wrench the entitlement out of a duke. Mm. And there's a lot of interesting stuff in there about the importance of clothing, uh, and especially the importance of clothing for women at the time. And there's an amazing scene where the Duke introduces his then fiance, a young lady who is very passionate about the conservation of birds, to his <laughs> mother, who is wearing a dress entirely made of rare bird feathers. Oh no. <laughs> it is amazing. So that was a lot of fun. I'm also reading another romance novel, Spellbound by Ali Theron which is an M.M. magical romance set in this time Prohibition era New York. Mm. It's got a lot of K.J. Charles, Magpie Lordy mm. sort of magical world building. Mm -hmm. And one of the main characters can see visions of the, the past of an object when he touches the object, which is Aha. very cool. And I also watched literally all of Dairy Girls. <laughs> yep because I needed something to watch and I'd heard really good things about it and I just plunged myself into it headfirst and had an amazing time. Freya, it's been one it. week. It's been one fucking week since we recorded yeah. last. Well, how have you read and watched all this? I've read one and a half romance novels. They're fast. They're fast. And there's not that much of Dairy Girls. Yeah. There's two okay. six-episode seasons. Yeah. Oh, okay. I, I feel better now. Thank I watched, you it, soothing, I watched that in like a day and a half. soothing my inadequacies. <laughs> yeah, the episodes are also like 30 minutes long. So, okay. Macy, what have you been reading? Okay, I feel way better now. <laughs> Macy has been reading... Uh, I've been back on my non-fiction bullshit mm. um, and digging deep into The Mongol Queens by Jack Weatherford, which is fantastic. I've heard this is good. It's really, really fabulous. Um, and... I want to steal like all of the queens for books and make books about all of them, but that's appropriative, so I won't, but like tempted. Yeah. And also this week I have been reading the CNN annotated version of the Whistleblower Report because Cheerful and darling listeners, it's the last week of September for us. It is. And shit's going down. Shit is Do you going also down. want to steal that for a novel? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, we're, like, I think Freya is the only one with a government that isn't on fire. Mm, yep, yep. Other than, oh, like, normal fire. it's not on fire, fire, but our prime minister is still, like, a sack of moldy potatoes. No, no, we, we are, we are all. With Trump, yeah, so. Yeah. We are all praying for Freya's government to catch fire, to be clear about the way that we're intending this, right? No. Yes. We're like, we feel it's very unfair that Freya does not also get a conflagration this yes, week. Yes, yes. I just am praying for daddy. 
I feel the need to clarify for our listeners that in a specific case, daddy is John Burko and nobody else in this conversation is daddy. <laughs> no, nobody else, nobody else uh, in this podcast is referring to him as daddy. This is an Alex no, if thing. you don't know what I'm saying, just go listen to the episode we did about uh, politics a couple weeks ago, or a couple episodes ago. Anyway, uh, I also watched all of Dairy Girls. <laughs> Uh, coincidentally, Freya and I were just sort of like on our telepathic uh, mind build bullshit together. Uh, I read Alexis Hall's new book, How to Belong with a Bill- Billionaire, which is a gay romance novel. It's the third book in his trilogy, uh, which finishes the trilogy. And it was a lot of fun. It was very emotional, and there were some hard and complicated emotions for me to face in that book. But uh, yeah, I really recommend it. Uh, and I watched more of Lucifer. I've been doing some crocheting this week, and I started a new, a new job. So that has been Yay. very exciting. Yay. An episode relevant job. Yes. An episode relevant yes. job. Yes, fiber arts. Mm. <laughs> now we have some news. Yes. Yes, yes. we do. Uh, first off, we are still calling for questions for our episode 50 extravaganza. If you missed it last time, this one will not just be a general Q&A. This is a special Agony Arts Q&A episode. So please, if you have a fictional character or somebody else's fictional character who has a particularly knotty personal problem, then have them write to us with a note asking our advice and we will do our best to answer it live on the podcast. Freya, you can submit these. When yes. you, I just want to clarify real quick. When you say a naughty personal problem, is that K-N-O-T-T-Y yes. or N-A-U-G-H-T-Y? No. Okay. No. But we'll happily <laughs> I mean, we will happily two? accept naughty personal problems as, and we but, including ones that may or may not involve nothing. So, Oh, you know. Lord. Uh, All right. Now we're definitely going to get some like styles bullshit anyway yeah probably anyway submit these to us by twitter or tumblr or email and the deadline to have them in is november 15th and i believe that macy also has some cool stuff going on a kickstarter of sorts maybe involving swords women and swords and lesbians and women's and princesses princesses. we have we have a project um an anthology project with a whole host of cool authors attached already and i have great ambitions for this one if we fund all the way to our ultimate stretch goal there are all sorts of fancy rewards in offer um and it's real gay people like i can't begin to describe how gay it is but if you click on the link that we will put below you can see the cover art which is also real gay so and i need that. to get onto actually writing my story for yeah, that anthology and- but i promise it will also be real gay Freya's gonna be featured <laughs> so yes it's gonna be if you have a couple spare dollars to s- throw towards Macy's cool, very gay swords and princesses <laughs> project. Uh, as we said, the link to the Kickstarter will be in the show notes. Please do check it out. We'll also probably be yelling about it on the internet. Let's have an episode. Yes, yes, indeed. So what are we talking about today? And why are we talking about etiquette and clothing, etc., etc.? Because it's fun. And because if you go out in public naked, people have feelings about it. Yes, and like there's so much sort of coding and unspoken impressions that you get from people's clothing. It's a way of really manipulating people's perceptions of you and like controlling and communicating and communicating and controlling the story that you're telling about yourself. But also very specifically when we're talking about speculative fiction, this is a massive avenue for world building uh, and sometimes to great effect and sometimes to hilarious effect, Mm -hmm. as we see in things like The Fifth Element. Mm, Yeah, yeah. (gasps) I love The Fifth Element. I do too, but (laughs) the costumes are... I do, but like the orange plastic clothing. I mean, the the orange plastic clothing is okay. It's more the bandage suspenders thing. Oh yeah, the bandage (laughs) thing. Yeah, that was also weird. So we have some opinions, darling (laughs) listeners, about clothing and social signaling. Yes. Shall we jump into the first tentpole, though? So, the first book that we thought up to... She is beauty. (laughs) She is grace. (laughs) She will punch you in the face. She'll Uh. trash in your face. (laughs) 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 That stays. Alex, don't edit that out. 
Oh, God. Hi, darling listeners. Let's have an episode. The first book, the first tentpole. The first tentpole that we picked up when we were planning this episode, lo, those many months Mm. ago, um, was Shades of Milk and Honey by Mary Robinette Kowal, which I have been meaning to read forever because I super loved her Calculating Stars, her sci-fi book with the lady astronaut. Mm. And I knew that there was this one waiting for me in the wings. And this is a book that's very much in the model of Jane Austen, if Jane Austen wrote books with magic in them. Yes. Uh, and everyone is extremely concerned with like their latest décolletage and the mother is the worst. Yep, yep. It's really genuinely incredible how uh, Mary Robinette Kowal hits every single trope of Jane Austen and just does it so beautifully and so lovingly, even down to like how words are spelled. Mm. But also without making you feel like, oh, I'm just rereading Pride and Prejudice. Right. Like this is its own book. And um, it's a book that is a lot concerned about appearance. The main character is an older sister who is very plain. Mm-hmm. And it's made pretty clear in the text that she's not just being modest, like she's plain. Um, And so she thinks that she's never going to marry. And she's very concerned thus about how people see her and what that means for the course of the rest of her life if she can't be perceived for her talents instead of for her appearance. But in a world where talents are as much to do with being able to cast illusions as they are with playing music or drawing art like they might have been in Jane Austen, well, there's a lot of temptation there. Like, do you use that talent, that glamour, to try to falsely enhance your appearance, possibly at the cost of your health? Which I think is a fairly pointed metaphor. Yes. Yes. Also, I've like I have really mixed feelings about that, right? Because so much of what we as women or female-bodied people do are or are expected to do is about mm-hmm. quote unquote falsely enhancing our appearance, right? Like mm. makeup or contouring. I am specifically flashing <laughs> back to that video. If, find if, out, yes, we can yes, shape we're on the same thing. If the men find out, we can shape shift. They'll tell the church. <laughs> They'll know we're witches. They'll know we're witches, right? Except like we're expected to sort of to sort of do that and falsely change our appearance a little bit. Uh, so I have really mixed feelings about it because on one hand, is it false? Like, this is the face that we are choosing to present to the world. Is mm-hmm. that inherently false? Because it's not the one that we were born with, right? Um, like, choice and empowerment and so forth. Well, this book was doing a lot of things with uh, double standards and gender around yes. that. Because I mm. think the way the use of glamour was presented in terms of appearance change is a little bit how some people do think about makeup today. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, it's okay to look like you're not wearing makeup because that makes you natural and it's naturally pretty. And the no makeup Mm. makeup look can actually be very effort intensive as long as nobody can tell that it's makeup. Yep. And as long as you're not glittering, as long as as you're not glittering. And I think the impression that I got of the culture as portrayed in this book was that everybody kind of does it a bit. It's a problem if you get caught out doing it Mm. Mm. and that's that whole idea where there was someone who was doing it very overtly in terms of disguising both herself and her clothes and her house to disguise poverty and probably there is a lot of subtle use of disguising glamours in this house in this sorry in this culture but it's the fact that she was doing it on such a large scale and then got caught at it and I think it mirrors the way that it's thought of in this culture as an accomplishment for young ladies. Right. Like nobody takes you seriously as an artist or a scientist in this area. Mm-hmm. That's for the men's. Mm-hmm. And it's just how women, young women could become, they can do their sketching and they can do their music and they can do their scribbles, but becoming a proper artist who people would pay money for, that's something that men did. Yes. And, and magic is framed in the same way. And I wasn't sure how I felt about the, so the uh, conclusion of the book is that this this very talented young woman who's our main character her art is lifeless because she's passionate she's too she's she's not passionate she's too precise and it takes a man telling her that she has to unleash her emotions to really bring beauty to her art not just perfection 
Yeah, I wasn't sure about that either because she seemed, I really liked how proud she was of what her creations were in the beginning. Right. And then there's this scene where she looks back and she's like, oh my God, he was right. They're terrible. Mm. Oh, I'm sure they were fine. No, they were lovely. Um, yeah. It's just doing different things because the men are allowed to have that power behind their work and the women are expected to be kind of contained, I guess. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. But I did enjoy also the glimpses we saw of them um, making their clothes and their garments and like putting these decorations on their hats and re-sewing this and making a lace fringe. And it really brought it home that the way that we interact with clothing today as a modern society, as something that you purchase as a done deal, is very unique or I can't say ahistorical about reality, but I want to. <laughs> Whereas, like, yeah. in, in these books and in many pieces of fiction, clothing is something that you are making for yourself and constantly adapting to display who you are and what you want to show. Mm -hmm. mm. And I think that they did show glamour as a temptation to view it as an extension of that because people put a lot of work into their clothes and constantly readapting the same garment. Mm -hmm. And so when people are arguing for the use of magic to, you know, make your nose a bit smaller or to make your skin a bit better, they were saying, well, it's just a part of that. It's just using what you have to change with the fashions. Mm -hmm. And Macy, you've read The Bells. Yes, Is that right? I have. By Danielle Clayton. What did you think about the, the way that that book uses that idea of sort of glamour makeup compared to how it is done in this book? Well, I really adore the magic system of the bells. Um, it's gruesome. It's utterly gruesome. It's an entire society that's obsessed with beauty and the magic is plastic surgery. And it's frequently torturous, unpleasant, painful plastic surgery. And it's brilliant. It's so, It says so much about the type of society that she's building there, that Danielle Clayton's building. Um, I, I really enjoyed it. That's but yeah, same, I would totally have different. drawn that um, comparison, but now I'm thinking about it as similar to Repo, which we talked about last episode. Mm, fascinating. With the society yeah. and, the, and this sense that once you hit that point, it's really, really representative of a very visceral kind of decadence. Yes, that you've, got, uh, that you've reached past changing everything else about the way you present yourself and you're digging down into the flesh. Right. Um, and then Paris Hilton's face falls off. Yeah. 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 Mm. Which is a mood. Yes. <laughs> anyway, shall we talk about other forms of beauty as pain with the hmm. next tentpole? Sure. Yes. Uh, so the next tentpole is the 2015 live action Cinderella movie. It is a retelling of Cinderella. It's a fairly, Yay. fairly, you know, accurate. Well, it's not really accurate to the original version, but, you know, it's a remake of the, the Disney version of Cinderella and it's fine. Um, it's very beautiful. There's some beautiful, beautiful costuming. I don't know whether it was, well, I mean, it wasn't consistent. It's Victorian era. Some of it I was Victorian. It was trying to be an era. It wasn't. Honestly. I think. It I think wasn't. Sandy it was like Powell five just eras. like walked into her clothing, you know, boutique design and was like, "What can we do with these large swathes of green shit that I have hanging around?" <laughs> and then produced some incredibly beautiful things. Oh gosh, so oh, beautiful! I think that each gorgeous. each piece of costuming was kind of saying its own thing without trying to relate to a broader <laughs> context or a shared meaning between the clothes, right? Each one yeah. was just unique to that character. And so you have this wonderful kind of patchwork quilt of many different yes. eras and many different styles, uh, which is actually kind of charming. Uh, the one thing that this movie, as in many retellings of Cinderella, leaves out is the bit of the original fairy tale where the when the the prince comes to, yes macy that's not the original that's the brothers grim well true the brothers grim true 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 those dates for 200 years the original french one which is exactly what we have here with the disney version so the brothers grim made it more gruesome which is pretty on because on them on par for the brothers grim yes, of the course, yes. yeah. but it is still super cool it's you should super tell cool though story. okay so the brothers grim version is that the prince comes to the house to try the glass slipper of the mystery woman on every woman mm. in the kingdom and uh, the when he comes to the Cinderella's house, uh, the eldest stepsister takes it and she's like, I will try on the shoe. And she takes it into the other room to try it on and it doesn't fit. So she cuts off her big toe to make it fit. And 
he the prince goes oh it fits you okay great i guess you must be her and he puts her in, uh, behind him on his horse and he goes riding off into the forest and then one of the doves comes and perches on his shoulder and says the shoe the shoe there's blood in the shoe this is not the wife for you uh and he looks <laughs> down and indeed the glass slipper is overflowing with blood so he takes her and the shoe back to the house and presumably <laughs> and washes presumably it. washes it i guess it's glass it's very machine washable it's fine <laughs> No, just like slosh it in a bucket of water hand it to the next yeah. person so then the second uh, stepsister takes it uh, and she's like i will take this into another room to try it on and she does and her sh- uh, foot won't fit so she cuts off her heel same thing happens prince comes back with the bloody shoe uh he's like is there another maiden in this house we've tried this on literally every woman uh, yeah. and cinder into the, into the woods does that version yeah, yeah. Uh, because Into the Woods really embraces the gruesome side of things. And the key part of this is that when Cinderella tries on the shoe, she doesn't take it into the next room. She just like plops herself down right there on the stairs and shoves her foot into it and says, fine, there, see? Uh, so there's this element <laughs> yeah. of like honesty and and like proof. And transparency with the glass shoe. Yes, transparency. Yes. By being like the magical shoe refused to fit anybody else. I'm like, that's a nice way of getting around the fact that most people have a fairly similar shoe size. Yep. Well done. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah. It's true. They but- do a lot with, I think you're right, Alex, clothes. Each outfit is used to make a very specific statement. Yep. So they do yes. actually use clothes as shorthand for character mm-hmm. quite yes, a lot. A lot. Um, so you, the very first time we see the stepmother brilliantly and gorgeously, gorgeously. played by Kate Blanchett uh, for whom these clothes were clearly you know designed with her in mind because she just she just wears the hell out of them the first time we see her she's wearing one of those net veils yeah. over her face giving this kind of like you know mystery slash danger slash not what she seems shorthand and she constantly wears this like very bright poisonous green mm-hmm. yes which is gorgeous although interestingly the first time cinderella meets the prince kit he is also wearing that exact shade of green hmm. which is interesting because most of the color theming of the palace is a split blue and yellow. Yeah. Like yeah. The, all the footmen are wearing like these weirdo half yep. blue, half yep. yellow things. Um, and he's the only one who wears green, which I found interesting because anyway, yeah. this, this movie's doing some stuff <laughs> with color and I'm not quite sure if it's a coherent stuff, but yeah. I'm interested by it. But they, yeah, you have these beautiful clothes and they are shorthand. So the stepsisters wear these very, very fussy tight curls, you know, ruffles and things everywhere. Whereas Cinderella has her hair loose and natural and wears a more simple cut of dress. And I did find and it hilarious. A lot of, like, that the, everyone there's is... a mode naturale, right? The, yeah, the there's a mode naturale. I'm going to get this sense. Both the hair. Yeah, that her it's the it's the style that her mother wore. And honestly, I I find it hilarious that literally everyone in the movie is like, your mother had no taste. I'm sorry. <laughs> she ends up wearing this dress, which honestly, the pink dress, she's like, oh, it's my mother's. She loved it. I'm like, that is a f- ugly ass dress. Yeah. And yeah. the stepmother's like, that's an ugly dress. And then her fairy godmother's like, mm, I think we can do better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was fun. But it also had a little bit of the like mending and um, darning is like, if you're having to take care of your clothes, you're not high status. Yeah, yeah, and this and the very obvious clearing out of Cinderella's sewing stuff mm-hmm. from the grand room and take that up to the attic where it won't clutter everything else up down here. And it's almost as if like the mother who did sew, who did you know go feed the chickens, was like in touch with life and the world and didn't feel herself above it in a way that it's now implied that Cinderella will make a better queen for being. But then the stepmother and the stepsisters feel that they are removed from that, that they're better than that, and that's why they're such horrible people. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I mean, the whole point of Cinderella is that idea that you can have this, like, beautiful heart, even though you're dressed in rags. Mm. And I, it's a little, again, a little incoherent as to whether it actually <laughs> believes that clothes maketh man, or woman in this case, or not. Because the whole point of Cinderella is that she's kind and courageous and lovely even when she's covered in ash and dressed in rags and it doesn't matter. But at the same time, the whole point is the magical transformation into the most beautiful dress in the world with the most magical shoes in the world. Like she couldn't actually have just gone to the ball looking like herself. She had to go looking like this incredible princess with a magical glamour to make sure she wasn't recognized. So they're sort of like, well, your inner beauty deserves this enormous poofy blue dress. I want to believe that the prince would have recognized her and welcomed her even if she had arrived in rags. It's really for everybody else, right? It's yes. like yeah. to, so that she can get in the door. But like once she's in front of the prince, like he doesn't look 
at her dress. He is looking at her, right? No, and he met her when she was wearing this, like, grubby yeah. blue dress yeah. on a horse and fell in love with her like that. Uh, yeah, I, I liked this movie more the second time I saw it, honestly. I saw it in cinemas with my sister and was like, well, this is enjoyable. And I don't know if it's just that I realized that the prince is played by Richard Madden. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> at the time, he, he wasn't really anybody at the time, and now I've seen him in, like, three other things. I'm like, oh, look, it's Richard Madden. <laughs> um, I also find it interesting so far that we... And I think this is fairly typical. We talk extensively about women's clothing and women's presentation and fashion. Um, but we do have a little bit of an example in this one of the prince trying to disguise himself and claim that he's just an apprentice. Um, mm, true. And he gets away with it in part because they're all dressed the same. Mm. Yeah. And it's almost like there's this uniform of men that lets a man define who he might want to be just by saying it. Whereas women are all set apart from one another. Oh my god, this is all of my thoughts about Beau Brummel too, because men, even today, like, have this uniform that they're expected to just wear, and it is, like, anonymous and blank, and, like, you don't need to express who you are through clothing because you can just, like, say who you are and people will believe it. And people will believe yeah. you. Yeah. 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 But there's also, and there's an element of that that means that the social signaling, signaling has to be a lot more subtle. And that's where you get with um, ads for things like Swiss watches. Yeah, the watches. Things like that. And because, the shoes. Like, Men and their shoes, fucking shoes. Because, you know, obviously if you are of a certain or status or care enough about the money, yeah. then you will notice that somebody is wearing the, you know, brand new Rolex. Or you will notice that this person's shoes are better. Or you may or may not notice that their clothing is made of very good fabric, which I think we're going to talk about later. And it all is happening on this really, like, here is your template you can't veer from. But here is the subtle signal. Yeah, so I wanted to talk about a movie I saw this weekend, which you guys should also both see because it was great, which is Hustlers. Okay. I've and heard it, good things. It's it's real good. It's really gay. Um, and it's about a group of strippers who decide in the aftermath of the financial crash in 2008 to kind of drug and rob rich wall street douchebags into it here for it yes deeply into yep. it. yes girl and here's yes the thing. they have a whole like three minute segment where they talk about the markers of who actually has money mm. when they're targeting people to bring back and they're talking about you know don't look at the suit look at the shoes look at the watch yeah yeah so it's exactly yep. what we were saying like the status markers um and it's both deeply limiting for them but also deeply freeing because they can like if you are masculine coded you can reinvent yourself in some ways just by changing but just by code switching yeah in a way that i would have to go home and change clothes yes man yeah also like the whole thing about like pocket squares and what your tie knot says about you. All of the tie knots look the same. Okay. Yeah, All of them look do. the same. Like, <clears throat> yeah, shut yeah. up. And we, and that's before we even get into the whole prospect of flagging. Yeah. Like oh, the yes. Whole... Which earring do you have one earring? Which earring? Yeah, like, and what color is the handkerchief and which pocket is the handkerchief oh in? God. Like, that's an actual use of those markers for, for an actual language rather yeah. than just a status symbol. Yeah. yeah. But we should probably talk about the third <laughs> Let's yes. talk about the third tenpole. Before we get distracted by that. And let's talk about <clears throat> men who wish to broaden their horizons. Yes. Here for it. So yes. our third tentpole is an utterly delightful graphic yes. novel by Jen Wang called The Prince and the Dressmaker. It's so and cute. I've been meaning to read this for ages, and I honestly think it is one of my favorite things that I have read so far this year. Yes. I was completely charmed by it. I spent a lot of it just bursting out laughing inelegantly in my bedroom <laughs> at some of the sort of one panel punchlines, I guess, and, and even just some of the dialogue. It's a completely charming book, and it's about uh, a young prince called Sebastian who hires a young dressmaker called Francis to come to the palace and make clothes for him. But what he actually wants is for her to make clothes that are for his alter ego, essentially. Mm. So he wants her to make beautiful dresses for him to wear. And he's going to wear them out at night with a beautiful red wig on. And he becomes this mysterious celebrity figure called Lady Cristalia. Uh, and the book is about his friendship with Francis and the way in which the growing fame of these clothes starts to come into conflict with the need to keep secrets about who mm. Lady Cristalia actually is. And so it's got a lot to do with, uh, I guess, gender expression and fear of 
being yourself in public mm-hmm. and also mm-hmm. wanting to be recognized for oneself and one's talents in a way that mm-hmm. I think t- um, ties back quite neatly to the first tent pole yes. to Shades of Milk and Honey. But also it is a kind of reverse Cinderella story. So it ties quite nicely into Cinderella because it is about someone dressing up in beautiful clothes and going out in the world in disguise, except the reverse is that it is both Cinderella and the prince in this are both the same person. Mm -hmm. So what I thought was some very interesting sort of ways of tugging at the edges of that trope. Yes. Like, I love Sebastian so much. um, And... He is such a disaster. He's such a disaster. They're both so cute, though. I mean, they're they are cute. so cute. And like, it, they're babies. They're tiny babies. And like, they're doing the gender weird thing. And like, I'm into it. I'm so into it. Yes. Yes. And like, to completely spoil the end for as is our want, uh, you're on yep. this podcast. You should know by now that we're going to spoil the end. The, the end scene where like, the, king his father and all of the guards uh help to put on the fashion show and wear uh francis's clothes on the runway francis's gowns francis's gowns yes uh the beautiful elegant couture uh haute couture gowns that she has made um and this massive bear of a this king. massive bear of a king in this like swoopy froofy froofy gown i love With it his chest hair i love it yeah. so much and yeah. makeup and facial hair yeah. and it's just oh and his pose is just like yeah yes. what other it's, it's like so this great. power the pose. king of belgium yes mm. <laughs> yeah it's lovely and it's this beautiful beautiful expression of of like love and solidarity because yes. sebastian has been so scared the whole book about what yeah. will happen if his family finds out that this is what he enjoys doing and this is part of who he is so in this book yeah clothes are really about that um, expression of one's inner self, but also the different aspects of oneself. Mm-hmm. In that, Lady Cristalia is not entirely who Sebastian is. He is also right. Prince Sebastian, and I really like. There was a moment in it where he and Francis go out, and he actually, and she actually dresses up like she, he. She actually wears a much fancier dress than she normally would, and he wears some of the clothes that she's been making for him as Prince Sebastian. Mm -hmm. And he says, oh, I wanted to give this a try. They're actually really comfortable. I really like them. And so it's not that he wants to dress as a a girl all the time. It's that the clothes he was wearing before, even the ones that, you know, fit Mm -hmm. as masculine presenting were not for him, and they weren't comfortable for him because he wasn't comfortable in his skin Mm -hmm. and one thing i really love that this book does so the first chapter is from france's point of view before we even meet sebastian and in it a young girl is the client of francis and is getting presented to the prince and she doesn't want to this young noblewoman she's just like just fuck me up basically yeah (laughs) like nicely she just says you know make me look horrible and the way that this girl is clearly absolutely delighted with this mesh tulip dress with like smeared ash on her face and she's loving it and her mother is horrified. And just that um, that counterpoint of how clearly happy she is, but how distressed society is mm. with her stepping outside of the norm yes. is such a great foreshadowing of the whole rest of the book, saying that it's not just about gender, it's also just about expression overall. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it does a similar kind of deliberate anachronism to what mm-hmm. Cinderella does, but in a in a more structured way. So instead of mm-hmm. each outfit being its own thing, it is more or less, I think, set in Paris at the very beginning of the 20th, 20th century. Yeah. So I think it's sort mm-hmm. of like bang on that turn of the century kind of era. And a lot of the clothing has that style, but everything that Frances makes that is her gowns, her sort of haute couture things right. are timeless. Like yes. the kind of thing that you would be able to see at the Met Gala today, mm-hmm. you would be able to see them um, on runways from, I guess, anywhere in the last few decades. Yeah. Um, and so there's this idea that she's ahead of her time, but also that the fantasy is forever. Yeah. Like the, yes. the gowns that are expressing someone's inner self are not bound by time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Which I really liked. And just to go back to like what we were saying about the the other young lady and how this ties into Shades of Milk and Honey, like there's very much a point to be made here that – so the the young lady and and Prince Sebastian are so unhappy because they're wearing clothes that are for other people and they want to be wearing clothes that are for themselves. But like clothes are at least 50% for other people, for the people around right. you. Like it is very very rare for you to wear something that is seriously truly just for you. 
it's you are right. almost always considering how it's going to affect how people look at you or how what impression you're going to to give a room. I think that actually leads quite on to quite well. On yeah, it does. Point. So I want to can I can I start with the Hal Jenkins bit? Yes, yes, go, <laughs> sure. go, go. Yes. <laughs> so of characters that care very deeply about what other people think yes. of how they look, but also dress for themselves. Yes, yes. I wanted to mention <laughs> Do it! Uh, our favorite trash disaster wizard, Hal Jenkins, uh, also known as Hal Pendragon. Yes! Um, <laughs> who, Alex, in Hal's moving okay? castle, spends an inordinate amount of time caring about his clothes. And clothes are very important. Both magical and non-magical clothes are very important in Hal's moving castle. Uh, like, um, mending clothes is seen as like a labor of love mm-hmm. and like she takes out revenge on clothes the hat making yes and she's a she's a hat maker they have like magical boots and various things one of my favorite things that happens in the book is that Hal who obviously is incredibly appearance obsessed and vain dresses himself up in essentially goth glam an icon to- <laughs> To go to a funeral, so he dyes his hair black, he has like a jet drooping earring, iconic. he's like black, black, gorgeous, yes, iconic, iconic. with a Q-U-E. <laughs> uh, and then he disguises, and then he throws on one of their magical disguise cloaks, and he's a dog. Yes, bitch, and, yes. And, and I actually ask him, like, why did you bother if you're just going to go to the funeral in disguise as a dog, because you know, you're, you're being hunted by the Wicked Witch. And nobody's going to know it's you. Why did you bother dressing up? And he says, out of respect <laughs> to to Mrs. Penstem, and she liked one to think of the details. And it's just I this love beautiful piece of character work about someone who cares so deeply about what other people think of him, but also has done this very <sighs> private sort of style expression for himself and the memory of someone he respected. Yes, it's beautiful. Yes, right. But I think there really are. There's these. There's a total break between wearing clothes to blend in mm. and wearing clothes to show off and step, set yourself apart. And it is such a character decision about which one you do. But I also just adore it when a book for quote-unquote plot reasons doesn't give characters choice about their clothing. Like, for reasons, you are now going to be wearing this thing. And my favourite example of this recently mm. was how fucking pissed off Gideon was to be in Gideon the Ninth to be forced into this like yeah skeleton obsessed cultist drag that she hates in order to put on this facade <laughs> that they are you have to necromancers <laughs> and she just reacts to this with like you know what fuck you I'm putting on aviators as well you can make me wear the paint you can make me wear the robes you cannot make me wear the stupid fucking blindfold also, I'm wearing my sunnies fuck off <laughs> yes incredibly iconic also oh, iconic gosh, like so speaking gosh. of sword lesbians but it does it does go to show exactly how comfortable or uncomfortable clothing can make you when you can have such a deep deep dislike mm-hmm. of wearing something that is not yourself and being forced to wear it and sit around, interact with it and put up right. with what other people assume about you mm. because of it. And I have way too much fun with this in Catalyst. Forcing my, uh, I'm a simple country blacksmith into elaborate mm-hmm. clothes of nobility mm-hmm. and watching her sulk extensively. Yeah. Because I'm the yeah. author and I get to. <laughs> and speaking of Catalyst, like, it's very much a, so she's a simple country ba- blacksmith, but due to plot reasons, which we won't get into here, she has a major social transition. Um, <laughs> and so she's having to dress for her new station. Yep. And that is uncomfortable because, like, yep. it's it's representative of um, being uncomfortable with the station itself. And the clothes are kind of the avatar of that. They're the, the right. tangible thing that you can put your hands on and be mad about and be uncomfortable in, just as you are sort of psychically uncomfortable in your new place. Right, exactly. And this actually made me think about the Goblin Empire. I was going to say. I, was, sometimes I'm thinking about Gideon Nav. <laughs> so, yeah, in the, in the <laughs> Goblin Emperor, the thing that immediately jumps out at me is that I think it's called Sheridancho Silk. Uh, which is like this this brocade patterned white on white uh, cloth that is is so blisteringly white that it ruins the weaver's eyes while they're they're making it, um, mm. and it does actually a really beautiful job of kind of showing us what the cost of fabric is. 
um, in right. these sort of semi-medieval fantasy settings. Uh, like bef- before uh, the industrial era, clothing was super, super expensive because it cost, right. you know, the it cost effort. It cost effort. like raising the sheep and the uh, woman who spun or the people who sheared the sheep, uh, the women who carted the wool into uh, wool to be spun, the people who spun the wool, the people who wove the cloth, the people who walked and fold the cloth. And the people who made the clothes itself, right? So that's, like, at least a chain of seven people just to have a piece of clothing that you can wear. It's incredibly... And that's, like, a shitty wool tunic yeah. as well. That's mm. not, like, fine muslins dyed with oh, silk yep. or silk that's... from the mulberry trees. And the... Yep, because that's undyed. I left out the dyers. Yes, I did. That's, un- yeah. that's yep. shitty yeah, undyed did. wool. Uh and the entire like um bringing barrels of pee down from the back country so that you could properly fix the dye yep. with yep the wars that england went to with the papacy around dye fixing freya can tell us all about wool stuff uh maybe <laughs> not stuff. right well, now it's interesting that you were talking about um in hustlers this immediate being able to pick a good mark because of the quality and the expense of mm-hmm. what they're wearing and that's exactly what happens in the first scene of my wool Yeah, right. Yes, is that one of the main characters is wearing a deliberately extremely good woolen coat because partly because he can afford it because his family are woolmakers, and partly because it is a very easy way for him to be pretending at being richer than he is. So his family is in trouble. He's like, well, at least I can still dress like somebody who is very rich, Mm -hmm. and that's why the other character picks him as a mark um, and tries to run a con. On him. And this is the social signaling, yes. right? This yeah. is what we saw so much to so much good effect in uh, Shades of Milk and Honey with the noble house, the Viscountess, who was the most impressive noblewoman in the area, is using glamour to disguise the fact she's got no money left and uh, putting putting these terrifyingly expensive white clothes on the goblin blood emperor that everyone is quietly ashamed of but it's the emperor so he has these robes mm. it's again it's it's um trying to recontextualize and maintain status and show yourself to be important even when you're in distress and i think it's a really lovely subtle clash to work into your world building as well yeah. it's like how do people signal that and is it can it the work the other way world? if you're if you have a class mm-hmm. structure that is extremely where the mobility is very limited you know there mm. are words in the english culture for people who dress above their station because they're having delusions of grandeur and things like even when dressed in uh, something that's considered age inappropriate like that saying mm. mutton dressed as lamb which right. I personally hate. It's a great saying. It's, uh, it's like yeah. terrible. It's, it's terrible. terrible. But it basically but is like, implying that you are something that is tough and old and no good, but you yep. are dressing yourself as something better. How dare you? And, yeah. you know. And it's this whole youth obsession with yeah. women as well. Yeah. But mm. Yes. But this idea that you should dress to your station and there's, yeah. there's something slightly uncomfortable and false and fraudulent about trying to dress up. Yes. And there's this whole wonderful thing. So I went through a phase a little while back where I watched a lot of harem shows, a lot of like Chinese mm-hmm. dramas. And then Alex got me in on this Turkish Ugh, The one. Magnificent Century. So good. The Magnificent Century and Empresses in the Palace. And one of the really cool things that I kind of want to steal for something was um, the emperor handing out gifts of bolts of cloth as status symbols to his concubines as to who was in favor yes and like everybody knew oh you have the duprioni silks oh wow we have to be nice to you because the emperor favors you yeah because like those would have been completely out of your budget right like the oh you you couldn't buy them. them no 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 and actually, uh, it wouldn't have been Dupioni silk because Dupioni silk was considered uh, one of the lesser silks uh, because <laughs> of the slubs. It's only in the modern day that we think that Dupioni silk is like fancy and good. Back in the day, like the more perfect and flawless a cloth was, the more expensive it was mm. because they didn't have like the industrial production that we have today. Now we see flaws as good handmade. because it looks handmade. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
yeah, you'll get these like little tags on leather bags being like, you know, this leather, you know, you'll see imperfections and scratches and like changes in the leather. This is because it's been, you know, handmade by a traditional method and it's real leather and that makes it better. Yeah. Yeah, yep. the status yep. has gone the other way. Yeah. I have so many things to say actually about fabric production and <laughs> economics because it always comes back to economics uh, when Doesn't we're it? in a, a fun facts Alex trivia corner uh, of any yeah. sort. Um, there's a dot point here. I Before I just hijack the podcast, I do want <laughs> to point out there is a dot point that says, is this where Macy humbly requests the best book fun facts Alex fabric crafts corner? Yes, it is. So... Listen, so I, I like I like me some corners. You, what you can do, I say? you do. So Alex, monologue away. I might like go make another cup of tea or something. <laughs> well, before that, <laughs> Freya, sit. Before stay. that, I want to give you guys the option to vote on which specific fun facts uh, fabric corner it's going to be. Do you want to hear about the history of cotton production? Do you want to hear about silk production, linen production, or ramier? Ramier, because you said something about women bleeding? Yes. yes. And I don't know anything about Ramier, so go off that on that. That sounds amazing. Let's go. About that. All right. So I may leave out a few details because it has been a hot second since I researched Ramier. But Ramier is a fiber. It is a natural fiber that comes from a plant. It is similar to linen in that like you have to process the plant and like crush it down to get the, the fibers that you can uh, spin into to cloth uh, mm-hmm. or into into thread. One of the ways that they do this is by chewing the ah. yeah, and the the fibers are very sharp, and they um, when they're first, you're kind of like pulling the the splinters out with your teeth. E- uh, and so when young women start learning this, like they don't have any calluses on the inside of their lips, ah. and so like you get a million tiny paper cuts on the inside of your lips just to make these incredibly thin, almost translucent uh, fibers uh, to spin into thread. And it makes this beautiful, stiff, but um, almost see-through cloth. Hmm. Uh, And it is gorgeous, but the cost of it is (laughs) so high. It really, really emphasizes the human cost of production. Right. And how, like... The, that these women are not just sweating, but literally bleeding to right. make this cloth. And this yeah. is the thing that I want to see more of in our fantasy and sci-fi. If you're doing the upper class five layers of fabric with slashing and gold, this is an entire pyramid scheme that your characters are on the top of. Mm-hmm. What's happening at the bottom? Um, and I want to say that, like, your friend Rowena Miller has some cool stuff about that, right? Yes. Uh, Rowena Miller wrote uh, Torn, uh, which is a book about a seamstress uh, who, in this sort of sort of 18th century, vaguely French Revolution-ish uh, fantasy setting. With, very Les Mis-ish, right? Yeah, yeah. A little bit Les Mis from the, the perspective of a female seamstress. And... Mm how she wants to and like a business owner as well and as a female business owner you know that also causes problems for her rowena deliberately sort of structured this so that this woman is having to deal with a patriarchy it's Mm -hmm. not just that this doesn't exist in the world it's that this is something that she's actively having to work against but specifically she's kind of at the interim level between the people who are at the bottom who are spinning who are losing their eyesight Yes. And between the people who actually get to wear the clothes other than the ones she has to wear to kind of advertise her business. And so that's what I want to see when we're world building, um, not just the supply chain, but also these aren't people somewhere else. These are people in your kingdom, right? Uh, these are your people losing their eyesight, your people cutting their mouths to shreds. How confident are you they're going to keep calmly paying taxes forever? Yeah. Why do we always go backwards in time when we're thinking about fashion, though, right? Like, I've had such a hard time coming up with good examples in sci-fi that really focus on the clothing. Well, yeah. I, I think part of it is that we have the context for the past, right? Like, we we can look at the clothing of the past and it is visually familiar to us 
um, because we know what a princess dress is like. We know what a merchant <laughs> dress is like, right? We, we know we what do. these, or we think we do, right? Um, and we know what those clothes are saying. I think that a lot of times in science fiction, in these more futuristic shows, they are coming up with costumes that look cool, but we are lacking the context for them. We don't know as much about what they mean or what they're saying other than this looks really cool or expensive, but shrug. Like um, in the dot points you hear, someone has listed uh, Padme's gowns uh, from the... Yeah, I was going to say that I, I was trying to think of examples as well from science fiction. And yeah. Padme's gowns are very much mm. in that sort of, they're almost historical in that yeah, it's they this are. sort of yes. court, they're courtly they're Mongol gown. Or and then you have like Chinese or. Yeah, and then you have like the Jedi robes, which yeah. if you just saw them out of context without knowing that they are a Star Wars costume, <laughs> would look historical. Right. Yes, but the question is who is producing Padme's gowns? Where are they coming from? Are they produced by machine? Do they have androids? to to make these gowns where are the fibers coming from what fibers is she wearing um are they cotton are they silk are they linen uh we don't know because we don't have that context i mean to be honest the visual dictionaries for the star wars universe are so comprehensive there's probably some shit about <laughs> well, that in there in one true. of them because they, they do a lot of incidental world building in the um i guess supplementary material mm. uh, and i'm pretty sure there is some stuff about like what why the gowns are the way they are and what they're made of um, as part of the sort of expanded universe in those visual dictionaries. But I think you're right in that context is very important and some science fiction genres have now developed Mm. their own visual Mm -hmm. shorthand and obviously in visual media like TV and movies especially, they will use costume to immediately tell you which subgenre we're in. Yes. Yes. And so there are some of them that have their roots that we don't even think about them, like The Matrix when that came out. Mm -hmm. That was doing something with visuals that was not been done a lot before. And it's now the Matrix look is the cyberpunk look. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if you think about military sci-fi, there is a lot that you can very easily be like, bang, this is the genre you're in. Like Battlestar Galactica is so fucking grubby and khaki (laughs) and blue and green, but all kind of dark and dull. And you know immediately this is a kind of grim, slight, you know, dystopian right, 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 right. sci-fi. And the only things that stand out in that environment are things that we are meant to look at. Like the first time we see Six in that red yes. suit. And then you see Six in the God. red dress. And it's like, again, the Matrix, the woman in the red dress is what you look at. Yep. Because everything else is different. And so it's using, again, these like color shorthands to say, this is the genre that we're in. Now look over here. And I was thinking about Farscape and how Farscape yeah. is a very colourful and I think probably a little incoherent in a really fun way sure. uh, in terms of the, the uh, world building around costume. Lots of like but black leather bondage gear. If I That's the thing. It, it kind of starts off with the black leather bondage <laughs> gear being just like a little bit of a sprinkling. And by the last season, everybody is wearing it. And you're like, yeah, are they just like- playing bondage chicken? Like, did they just want <laughs> to see how much of it they could get away with before someone turned around and was like, is a leather convention happening? Like, what is actually going on on this <laughs> like, set? Do those chaps have it's an ass? It's a great show. It's a great show, guys. It's a great show. <laughs> uh, at uh, least they never put Rigel in it, I think. Yeah. Oh, thank uh, God. No. Oh, yeah. right. I don't know. <laughs> I know. I think there's like a fucking dream sequence oh, or something. You're right. You know no, how you're totally right. There is. Yes, there, where he there wears is. the bondage gear and oh, like. Oh, fuck. Yeah, shit. Yeah, yeah, no, you're completely right. I blocked it out. I blocked it out. so absurd. Oh, it's so good. Anyway, <laughs> I uh, just <laughs> to, to briefly think about this from a craft perspective and a, us as writers mm, perspective. Mm-hmm. So then how can we as writers use clothing descriptions or use of clothing in written books mm-hmm. to either capture characters or mislead the reader about characters because it's harder when you haven't just got that boom here's the doctor's new outfit you know right boom right. here's one shot showing you what everyone's wearing what is shown in visual media like you're absolutely right as you said macy you can't just wear nothing people right. will comment they, people will they have comment. to wear something uh and so it doesn't really matter what they're wearing if you're just telling a story that, that that's irrelevant. But if you're describing clothing in a book, an editor is going to say, why is that there? And so a reader will be thinking, why is this here? Why has this specifically been remarked upon? I, I have, that, I, I have I, thoughts about this. Uh, unless, Macy, did you want to go ahead? I, I was just going to say that, like, one of the things that I've really enjoyed about your book, Freya, that you're, you're working on at the moment is that it has a ton of, like, kind of toga-ish clothing 
that just works differently to what we're used to and what we expect in a high fantasy. Yeah. But it's super cool because it's a new language and it's new to the characters as well. And so you can introduce it to the readers and help them come to read it as a language of expression while yeah, the characters do. That was very deliberate because, yeah, obviously one character grew up there and so she thinks nothing of the idea that you constantly change your undergarments um, based on weight as to whether you're staying inside or what. If you're going outside, how cold is it, how warm is it, uh, and then your beautiful like decorative thing you put over on top just goes on top. Whereas the other guys are like, oh my god, we have to keep changing this? What What is happening here? And they have <laughs> particular signals to do with the types of trim on right. the wraps. Like there's a whole thing about they use sil silver is for mourning. Um, and like there's some other stuff that I like haven't had time to go into because you can't throw all your world building onto the page as That's much as true. you might want to. Very but, true. but it was a lot of fun to do that. And I had to keep going back and constantly remind myself again of what differences there are in this because I am obviously used to a certain shorthand. And when you deliberately create world building, you have to make sure it makes sense. But I think, Alex, you, you wanted to, to speak more generally. Yes. Um, my piece of advice for doing this um like when the editor asks you why is all this clothing description here right so just be super aware of the fact that clothing is saying something about a person like don't yep. just describe the clothes that a person is wearing describe what the viewpoint character thinks about yes. the clothes yep. about the person wearing the the clothes based on their appearance yes. so for example like how is this person adhering to the norm how are they um sort of subverting the norm what are they doing wrong what are they doing right what does that say about them as a person uh what does it say about the person thinking about them um yep. yeah like there's so many layers of like don't just describe the clothes describe the character using the clothes right and yeah you use that language i think that what the first time we we see Isabel in, in my book Catalyst we say you know and she was wearing the the silk gloves of a noble mage yeah so you instantly know oh gloves mage cool mm, yeah it was very interesting going from writing my first book where both of the characters are involved in the fabric trade and just yes. notice fabric all the time to go into a book where neither of the characters actually care that much about clothes they will notice exactly as you described they'll notice if something about the signaling is off right. and from what they had expected given the status of someone mm -hmm. but other than that or they'll or they'll notice given it's a romance if oh that color looks very good on this person but other than that <laughs> they don't care don't give a shit so it's hard you have to sort of slip things in sideways if it's completely irrelevant to your point of view character but i will also make a little bit of a different argument which is um know what the joy of your book is there are some things that are there just because they are part of the genre and they are enjoyable, right? Yes. Um, and so I don't always love this thing of you have to justify everything for like plot reasons or world building reasons. I'm like, okay, That's but true. sometimes I just like, this is a high fantasy court intrigue and we're going to have some really beautiful clothes. Yeah, that's true. I enjoy clothing descriptions in books greatly, like I enjoy food descriptions. <laughs> because it feels like, it, you're right, it, it, sometimes you can feel like, oh, this is a slightly frivolous part of the world building. But at the same time, I think both food and clothing are so integral to a, to your the sense that you get of a culture that it doesn't often feel extraneous unless it is completely overdone you really feel right. like you are getting a sense of the texture of somewhere well and i think that we're wrapping up towards the end of time so i know we haven't really touched on fanfic all that much in this episode um and i'm going to refrain from quoting much of it but i will wrap us up with a brief reading from one of the better known fan fictions of all time take it away macy Hi, my name is Ebony Darkness Dementia Raven Way, and I have long ebony black hair, that's how I got my name, with purple streaks and red tips that reaches my mid-black. I'm a goth, in case you couldn't tell, and I wear mostly black. I love Hot Topic, and I buy all my clothes from there. For example, today, I was wearing a black corset with matching lace around it and a black leather miniskirt, pink fishnets, and black combat boots. I was wearing black lipstick, white foundation, black eyeliner, and red eyeshadow. And for all that we love to mock it... That tells you exactly who she is. Yeah, but also it tells you exactly who the author wants, wants you to think of someone who wears that, that versus is... what you may actually be thinking of someone who wears that. That is true. Anyway, darling uh... listeners, there is nothing wrong with dressing like that or with Absolutely having an unironic not. appreciation for my immortal. 
Hello everybody, thanks for joining us for this episode of Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely, extremely deep literary merit. We all love yelling about clothes, even though I personally am very far from Alex's Fibercraft's expertise. The closest I've come to making my own clothes has been cosplay, and also making some ice skating costumes, and after spending years of my life besequening a single sleeve, I decided to pay someone much more talented to do all of my future costumes. It's just not me. I'm the kind of person who was deeply envious of my first exposure to the intersection between clothing and SFF, which I think was the opening credits to Sabrina the Teenage Witch, where she poses in front of her mirror and changes her outfits by clicking her fingers. Truly, hashtag magical goals. For the next episode, two weeks hence, on November 13th, we're talking about female reimaginings. So get ready for us to ruin some childhoods and probably go down a hole about our enormous crushes on Gillian Holtzman. As you may have guessed, one of the tentpoles will be the 2016 Ghostbusters movie, so go ahead and treat yourself to a viewing of that if you'd like to prepare ahead of time. Questions? Comments? Breathless adulations? You can get in touch with us at serpentcast at gmail.com, and we're at serpentcast on Twitter and Tumblr. And remember, we also have a fan Discord chat, which is linked on the About the Show page of the podcast website. If you do enjoy the podcast and would like to support us and access some very cool bonus content every month, we also have a Patreon, which you can find at patreon.com serpentcast. And by the way, that outfit looks incredible on you.